stories to you. Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Devotion, was recorded at our 2022 festival and features Hannah Kent in conversation with Ashley Hay. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this session of the 2022 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We've just discovered that we are the first event to be in here after two years of, of ghost light and darkness in this theatre. <laughs> so I have to say that feels, um, that feels pretty special as well. My name's Ashley Hay. It is my huge pleasure and privilege to be talking with Hannah Kent about her stunning new novel, her third novel, Devotion. The acknowledgement of country is critical to the architecture of so many events Australia now, this small pause, this small step that we try to take. But before Hannah and I begin to talk, I'd like to ask you to hold the idea and the function of that acknowledgement in your minds and your hearts a little more tightly, because acknowledgement in a really broad and cultural sense and on this continent feels to me like one of the anchors of this remarkable book. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this unceded land where we're coming together today, the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. I'd like to recognise their cultural heritage, beliefs and continuing relationship with the land. I'd like to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging, and the extraordinary privilege of meeting on the lands that they have cared for for so long. But I'd also like to acknowledge the millennia of stories that have been told across this continent and the amazing privilege of being able to gather together again to share these particular stories. So Hannah Kent is one of Australia's most powerful and loved writers, I would say. As Australian readers, we found her, as the world did, through burial rites, um, the landscapes and extremities of Iceland back in 2013. And then we travelled with her to the richly superstitious landscapes of Ireland in The Good People. So now, perhaps in a way, she's bringing us home to the lands of the Paramount people in the Adelaide Hills and to the story of a Prussian Lutheran community exiled from their own land on the other side of the world and delivered to become part of the process of annexing this place. So we're in the late 1830s. Um, and the eyes through which we're seeing this story are those of a beautiful and extraordinary young girl, Hannah, an outsider in a community that's already outside its own nation state. She's navigating her village in Prussia, she's navigating herself, her meeting with the almost effervescent Thea, and then their moment of departure from home, the vast ocean that spans that there and this here, and the extraordinary process of arriving and entering into this continent through the very young settlement of South Australia. Hannah, I have to just start by thanking you for this book, which is one of the most beautiful I've had the pleasure of reading recently for the characters, for the chance of meeting them and, and sharing their story. I want to start with where the book ends, in a sense, where you bring us to, which is one of Australia's many landscapes and the, the the places in this book are almost characters in and of themselves. What drew you home to write about Australia after two novels that were set so far away? Oh, thank you, Ashley, for saying those lovely things. And thank you for having me here today. I'm so grateful to be able to be here and to be talking about this book. 
Um, this book is absolutely my most personal, and that probably begins with the fact that it's set in a place which is very close to my heart, uh, a landscape, a specific landscape, the Paramount region, um, now known as Adelaide Hills, where I grew up. Um, I, after, I never really thought I would write about Australia, particularly within a historical context, because I was concerned that my familiarity with it and my deep love of it would actually hinder my ability to, to present it in a new way. I felt that I was much too close to my material. But I think after having written two books set in lands where I was absolutely an outsider, uh, I, I found myself thinking and being in this landscape after The Good People came out. I actually was living in Melbourne at the time and then went home where I'd grown up and I ended up buying a place there with my partner and sort of creating a family in this country. And it was there, back in the Adelaide Hills, surrounded by the most, I mean, it's just one of the most, and it has, I don't know if anyone has been there, but it's just some of the most exquisite country I've ever had the good fortune to be in. And I was so overwhelmed with the beauty and the privilege of being back in this space that I think that was one of the reasons why I really started to think, m maybe this is something that I can do. Maybe instead of being afraid about writing Australia, I should embrace it. I found myself going for long walks. I found myself you know, suddenly having an interest in the history of the place, which I hadn't really had previously, certainly growing up. It wasn't something that I really concerned myself with. And um, these things, I started to think, you know, the fact that I couldn't shake it from my sort of daydreams and my waking consciousness, I always take this as a signal that perhaps it's something I need to write about. And so unlike my previous two novels, which really began with people from the past that I had discovered, and then the landscapes and the countries and the culture being secondary to that, or being in, in, to the fact that they were always necessary in relation to the exploration of character, this book very much began with landscape. It was the first thing that I started to consider. Can I write about this beautiful place? Can I even distill its beauty into prose? And I guess that was the initial challenge. And then everything else, the character, the story, that it was secondary. So when we first meet Hannah, and when we see her in her family, in that small Prussian village, one of the first things that we hear her wonder as she watches other people is how they know who to be, which is a beautiful line. And in lots of ways, Devotion is a book that explores that journey for almost all of its characters in different ways, the ongoing journey of working out who they are and how and how that self fits into community um, in the Northern Hemisphere and then again in the South. Can you talk about the ways that Devotion allowed you to unpack these ideas of discovery and transformation and escape. I think I'm thinking particularly of the main two characters of Hannah and Thea here, but also for this, this quite particular small Lutheran community as well. I think these questions and these, I guess, um, subjects of concern in the novel arose organically out of that first interest in landscape. When I, was, I, well, I had decided, look, let's, let's see if I can write something set in Australia. Let's see if I can honour the landscape and write a story around it. When I started thinking about character, I started thinking about a character who regarded the landscape in a different way than perhaps her peers and family did. And this interest and these sort of, this kind of line of questioning developed in tandem with my research into the local history of the area. I'd become quite interested in... Um, 
in the Prussian communities which, which sort of started flourishing um, as a result of emigration due to persecution in Prussia. Um, I, had, I grew up very close to a place called Handorf, which some of you might be aware of, also known as Bakatilla. And I knew a great deal of the, I guess, inherited German culture. Uh, you know, there's in that place, which is still there today, it's like a German tourist town now, but also in the Barossa, where my own um, ancestors lived, um, where I'm descended from families who lived in the places in and around there. And I was, when I was living in Melbourne, I was always struck by the fact that many people were unaware of the fact that so many of the inhabitants of colonial South Australia were Prussian or German. They're now often referred to incorrectly as German because they were German-speaking. And I thought, well, maybe this is something that I can pursue um, in tandem with the exploration of landscape. You know, people arriving in this landscape, people who are persecuted, wanting to find a new home, wanting to find safety, and in turn sort of passing on persecution through the displacement of the Aboriginal and Indigenous people there, the Paramang people. And so these were sort of the things that I started questioning, or these were sort of the two lines of interest, the, the Prussian emigration to this place, to this beautiful country, and also a character who belongs to those congregations and communities, who has a completely different relationship with nature, who sees it as a subject and not an object, and so all these thematic ideas kind of just started developing in this very sort of chaotic, unstructured way. Um, and then everything flowed from there, basically. It was sort of me setting up, I guess, the great, the great themes in the novel. And then every event, every character decision just kind of unwound from these main concerns. I want to come back to Hannah's particular relationship with nature a little bit later on. But I'd love to just sit with the the sort of discovery of the book a little bit more. You mentioned um, last night at the beautiful opening session the notebook that you keep alongside all your books. And you had this lovely description of it being almost like the soul of the book where the book itself is the body, I guess. Can you talk a little bit more about how, the, how those two different um, acts of writing and thinking inform each other? And, and was it different for a book where you were actually living in the landscape that you were, you were writing? It's true that I keep a notebook. Um, often I begin it before I begin a novel. I wish I could be one of those writers who have a very clear idea of what they want to do, have a very strong sense of plot, map it all out, and then go ahead and write chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. And I'm not that. I'm as far from that as you could possibly consider. I am incredibly chaotic. You know, books arrive to me in little sort of pockets of interest. I feel like I collect little things, little curiosities or preoccupations. And the notebook is often where I'll start to allude to these preoccupations. I don't know if any of you have read Charlotte Wood's beautiful recent book, The Luminous Solution. And she talks about heat seeking as you know, the things that draw you or that compel you or that you have questions and curiosity about. And the notebook is really a vessel for me to hold these ideas uh, as often kind of as um, shapeless as they might be. Uh, and also the things that I find or discover in moments often of ser synchronicity or serendipity that seem to speak to the heart of something of what it is that I'm already trying to articulate. So I, I keep these notebooks. And so, for instance, when, when I started thinking about devotion, I was putting in a lot of descriptive writing of country. Uh, I was putting in, you know, I, one of the quotes, the first quotes I put in was a quote from The Ghost Wife by Michelle Dikonoski, uh, which spoke to the fact that 
the queer community inherits uh, a history of silence and notable absence, and that so much is concealed by, you know, by meaningful friendships, by these narratives of meaningful friendships. And that was something that really struck a chord with me. Initially, at this stage, I was interested in looking at a, a character, having a protagonist who was very different through this relationship to nature. And I was initially considering writing a book that focused on friendship. And then with this quote and the time that I received it, which was 2017, the year that we had the plebiscite on equal marriage, I started thinking, no, you know, it's not, it's not that. That's not enough. I need to, you know, if I am in a position where I can create a work of queer representation, a representation of queer joy, in tandem with this exploration of nature, then, then that's what I need to do. And so I put Michelle Dikinoski's quote in there, and from that point, the notebook just filled with this very strong sense that this... This is a book that is going to be a love story. This is a book that is not only a love story between two women uh, who are outsiders in this community, but it's also ab about you know, the, the different loving relationships, different ways of devotion, devotion to landscape, devotion to God, devotion to a sense of a, of a higher meaning that you surrender yourselves to. And as soon as I sort of started collecting this stuff in the notebook, you can see it if you go back, you start to see this very strong sense of all the weird stuff that at the, time, at the time I knew needed to be in it and I didn't know how it was going to fit together. And then the process comes then for me of, of drafting some material and sort of putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle where you don't have a picture on the box. You're just going by feel and you're going by intuition. So that was sort of the reason why I keep it and that's the very, very, chaotic way that I pull things together. I wish I could do it in a much more sort of, I don't know, a much more clear and calm manner, um, but that's not how I work. It's very much sort of a, a weird combination of, of craft and grind, but also without mysticizing the process, a lot of intuition, a lot of gut feel. I, I always suspect that those people who say they plan everything and do it really calmly are just making it up because it's, <laughs> it doesn't seem to me that's, that it can, yeah, can, can be feel, creative. It can feel clean in retrospect when you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, I knew what I was doing. Yeah. I never know it's, what it's I was like doing. It's like childbirth. You forget the pain, all those sorts of things. <laughs> Um, I particularly love the structure of this book. It's one of the things I just adored about it. I love the way it, it weaves through Hannah's past and present. She's reflecting back on her childhood in a lot of parts of the book. Um, and again, this is from early in the book. She talks about understanding, this is a quote from the book, the terror a mother feels at the prospect of loss and how easily superstition creeps into the smallest of gestures. If I bless you every night, you will remain here. If I keep your teeth, no harm will come to you. I wondered if you could talk for a moment about this fascinating intersection between love and superstition. It was a very powerful force in the good people mm -hmm. as well. Is it something that belongs to these historical 19th century landscapes or is, it, is there a contemporary face of this sort of drive and um, compulsion as well? I think the things that interest me most from our historical past and in terms of historical characters and ways of being, social mores, social beliefs, religious beliefs, is not so much the beliefs themselves as what they say about the nature of human, of, of, of living, of, of humanity. Um, so for me, in the case of the good people, looking at superstition and folk belief within that historical context was less about, you know, stories of fairies and changelings, but much more about a people who 
are quite powerless because of the power structures within their society, namely women of working class who are illiterate, who don't have a wider support of kinship, and the ways in which in their disempowerment they can lean upon these sorts of um, modes of, be of believing or of acting to sort of encourage the idea of agency in their own lives. You know, this, I think this is what, you know, is really the motive behind any sort of superstition. It's this idea that if I do this thing, then I am somehow protecting myself in a world of uncertainty where truly I have no power to prevent this from happening. So perhaps it's, you know, it's a, it, whether or not it works, that's a whole other thing. I, but I, I'm interested in that human sort of, that human desire to control and the human desire for certainty. And I think that's why it keeps coming up in my books because it, it's just related to, to love and fear. And I feel like everything always just circles back to these universal, timeless emotions that we all share. And if you can look for these, if you can look for these sort of motivations and the experience of these emotions in any sort of historical context, you will always find them. And often they're the reasons for all sorts of crazy behavior, what we would deem you know, un unlikely or unusual now. So for me, writing about that particular thing, you know, the idea of a mother wanting to protect her children from uncertainty, which on one hand I think you can intuitively understand is something that no one can ever really do. You cannot protect anyone from, you know, the, the random fortunes of life, yet still the, the impetus to do so is very strong. And what that does is speak to that fear of uncertainty and also to that, that deep love that we can hold for others. I'm not sure if that entirely answers your question. But. No, it does. And I'm also interested in whether your perceptions of, or your experiences of love and fear have changed since you became a mother as well. I don't know. I'm always a little reluctant to say yes because I don't believe that you need to have particular experiences in order to write about them or have an interest in them. Um, I think that's a huge disservice to you know, imagination and empathy. Um, and certainly I wrote about motherhood and, and being a child and having children and all these sorts of things in my books when I wasn't a mother. But I think what it did do, if anything, was not necessarily make me consider being a parent, but it actually made me reconsider my own status as a daughter, if that makes sense. So the, the parts in devotion, and there's quite a lot between Hannah and her mother, um, Johanna, whom she's named after, and initially the sort of, when, when Hannah is younger, the, Hannah has a very strong feeling that she can't live up to her mother's expectations. Her mother is the embodiment of the virtues that are, are most valued by this congregation. You know, she's very submissive, she's very diligent, she's stoic, she is all these things, and Hannah feels that she is intrinsically not any of these things and therefore doesn't have the approval of her mother. And then over the course of the book, I was interested in exploring the ways in which somehow, sometimes as a child, you are preoccupied with how you are perceived as a parent because you're unable to regard your parent as anything other than a, a mother or a father or a guardian. And what I think becoming a mother did for me was made me have a renewed appreciation of my own mother as a mother, but also my mother as her own person. And I think maybe that's how, that's what snuck into the novel more than anything else. But it's such an interesting, I mean, it's all like, it's such an intimate relationship and there is, it's one which is completely rife with, with fear and love. Uh, you know, there's, there's a reason why it is in so much literature. It's covered in so many stories. It's because I still think there's so many ways to essentially tell the same story, which is that you can, 
you can have all of these emotions tied up in one very complex relationship. That's sometimes the last thing you want and also, the, the other hand, the very thing you need. I want to stay um, with craft a little bit more and stay with one of the things that makes your work so powerful for us and read as readers, and I think it's even stronger in Devotion than in the first two books, which is the way that you really inhabit or embody the world that you're creating and the people in it. Um, you allow us through that to have a very deep and embodied experience of their lives and their place. And I want to sit for a minute with the way the world sings to Hannah, which is, it's, it's a beautiful metaphor, but it literally talks to her in a way that makes perfect sense, I have to say to me. Um, she hears the wind, she hears the trees. She is, she is not at one with them, but she is present with them in a really particular way. What did that metaphor and that idea allow you to create not just around Hannah, but also around the way your readers would, would sort of meet her and her place. And, and can you talk a little bit about the, the processes that allowed you to bring this sort of very deep observation and attention to the world, onto the page? Well, I think I was interested, you know, when I, when I decide I have a kind of a vague idea of the areas that I'm interested in, I tend to sort of, I guess, um, work out what exactly I'm going to do with them by, by research. Um, one, for the historical information, always has an impact and often will inspire certain ideas, uh, but also because it allows me to think more clearly about, I guess, the, you know, the, the contemporary message of essentially a historical novel. And with this book, once I had decided that I wanted to write about Australia, and I wanted to write about a community of people, a congregation of religious people, arriving in a place and essentially, you know, stealing it and, and then kind of recreating a place that they had been exiled from. My thoughts kept returning to this idea of, of I guess, our, you know, our, the different ways of relating to the natural world. Um, I was always struck by the way in which in so many of the documents that I read, you know, letters and diary entries, so many of these emigrants talk about, talked with reverence about nature, but also made it, you know, it, it was an object. It was something to, to work. It was something to have dominion over. It was something that was totally an object. It was there, within their rights to have control. It was very much a relationship where, of separation. And I was interested in this because I don't necessarily agree that that's the case. That's not my own personal relationship to nature. That's not how I see it. And I know it's not how many other people see it. And so I wanted in Hana to have a strong sense of difference and a completely different ability to relate to the natural world. Um, I, I had a very strong sense that this would become later important to the plot, which I think it does. But I was interested in having someone within this congregation where it's all about, I mean, this is, a, this is a, an agricultural, a labouring community. Um, this is how they, they, these people are sort of subsistence, like families who have a very small plot of land, just a couple of acres, and they work that and they become sort of self-sufficient through that. But I was interested in Hana, in exploring, I guess, the way, the alternate ways that we can relate to landscape, that we can relate to the natural world, which is, like I said earlier, completely subjective, where it's much more a relationship of, of equal give and take, where it's not a resource, where it's actually something which is much more akin to 
to the divine, where there's a spiritual element to that way to commune with the natural world. And I wanted Hannah to embody this and then sort of place that in direct contrast with the attitudes of her family and, and the congregation and the community. And this starts right from the beginning in Prussia. I mean, the fact that Hannah feels that she can hear the sun singing, that she, the trees will speak to her, she has, this is a source for her, this was a, it became very important in terms of her characterization. It's a source of great joy for her. And it alters the way too that she relates to God. She sees God everywhere. She has a much more sort of pantheistic approach to worship. Whereas for her, fa her father, who is an elder within this persecuted congregation, you know, God is, he mourns the loss of the church. He mourns the loss of those rituals and rites which were their, you know, their means of worship prior to the persecution. And she, even when she's younger, she doesn't quite understand his grief at the loss of, say, the church bells, because to her it's completely unnecessary because you can go out and you can hear nature speaking to you, and that is God. It's one and the same. And so these themes, this idea of, of, that, of a higher being, of a higher meaning, of a higher power, these were the things that started to creep through in my exploration of the different ways that we relate to country, the different ways that we relate to the world about us, and the ways in which we can seek to foster a relationship to the natural world, whether that be through, like I said earlier, dominion as a source that I have a right to, you know, my right to take things from, or whether it's much more reciprocal. And so those were the sort of the things that then carried through, not only in the sense of, like I said, how we relate to nature, what the world means to us, which I think is a very contemporary concern and is one of my contemporary concerns, but also what that means in, in a spiritual sense. Um, and yeah, like I said, just harks back to the idea of devotion. You know, is nature devoted to us? Are we devoted to it? Or do we use nature as, I don't know, do we forget about nature in our, in nature in our search of something to surrender to, to, to be um, in our search for meaning? Um, yeah, again, I hope that answers your question. It does, and I wondered if you'd do a small reading for us now and, um, and introduce us to the, the world that Hannah hears. Uh, well, the, the bit I can read is, is from, the book is narrated by Hannah, and this is a section from when they arrive in, in uh, the colony of South Australia, and perhaps will give you an understanding of how she relates to the natural world and how she sees it as opposed to her, her family. The sound of this country is one long sustained note that does not end. It is a humming that holds all the other music of this place in harmony. Every other sound is threaded upon it. It was at the port that I began to curate new litanies. Between the bullock drivers that rumbled in from Adelaide, the sailors, the merchants, the English come in search of laborers, I found words given to the music I heard against the constant run of the wind amongst the rushes and sand dunes. She oak for the tree with long scaled needles, whistling the wind in a way that made my skin lift. Magpie lark for the two shriek, calling peep in changing hours. Salt paper bark for the crooked trees grown in wooded, cupped fruit. Mangrove, wattle, salt bush. In the months that came afterwards, I learned new words as the congregation did as we crossed the dusty, ticking plains of Adelaide. I placed them next to one another upon the deeper vibration of this country. Galah, cockatoo, lorikeet, kangaroo, wallaby, possum. Emu, goanna, quoll. Now, years later, sitting on the lip of this valley, I can make prayer beads of the trees that crown me, 
The small living things glimpsed if I am still and silent. Red gum, blue gum, quandong, stringy bark. And the birds ever here, ever singing, a liturgy to govern the hours towards gods of cry and shriek and call. Kookaburra, magpie, shrike thrush, wagtail, karawang, crow, bubuk. Scripture may no longer roll off my tongue in smooth certainty, but my mouth is still full of spirit. Holy writ of living things, each one a prayer against the teeth. Nature had always been my whetstone, had always made me keener, and after the congregation reached the foothills, I felt myself sharpen. The landscape on the ascent to the ranges was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I had thought the pine forest back in Kay a place of divinity, but this country was infinitely more sovereign. Each morning, while it was yet dark, the birds filled the air with singing so that the sun, when it rose, brought light as symphony. The birds were everywhere, hosts of raucous angels, black-bodied, yellow-topped messengers of shrieking delight, soot-streaked coral masters, feather-fat kookaburras suddenly, alarmingly proselytizing to the dawn. Even the trees grew in such a way as to welcome the sun to the world. In Prussia, canopies were dense and thick. Forest floors were deeply shadowed. Here was a place of lightness. Leaves dappled thin and shiny, fluttered pink, gray, green. I crushed them in my palm and smelled medicine, healing. Hot still days dropped branches, all bone crack and brought the sounds of bees. Sometimes I smelled honey warming the air. Animals were muscled fur and liquid eyes or scaly thicknesses, tongues darting. And all of it, trees and possums and kangaroos and bright beads of ants circling trunks, veered from stillness to flashing movement in an instant. There was energy here, rough softness. Sometimes it rained, and when it stopped, the air was perfume, a clean scent of wet leaf and damp sweetness. I wanted to drink that washed summer air, I imagined it tasted of reprieve. My father, too, was invigorated by everything he saw. He ran his fingers along the ground and filled his nails with soil. God's gifts, he said, smiling at Matthias. Papa's voice in prayer was the first to interrupt the dark. He scaled the ridges with kingdom come strides and remarked aloud upon the extravagance of sunlight, the yawning orange of rock faces, the views that suddenly appeared when the trees fell away to vistas that stretched to a shining belt of sea. He wore the hardship of the journey like a hair shirt. The wonder and the deprivation and the physical toll were bringing him closer to God. It was all sanctification. I'll leave it there. I'm sort of tempted just to ask Hannah, Hannah to keep reading for another, but anyway, <laughs> I'll keep going. Put my glasses back on. Um, you mentioned in the acknowledgements to the book that you leaned hard on the story of the zebra, which was one of the migratory voyages made to South Australia, and it brought a group of old Lutherans to the place that became Harndorf. Was that the genesis, the initial spark of the story for you, or did you go looking for it, in a sense, as, as the, the kind of historical moment to, um, to explore? Because I, I think what I'm really interested in is where the, the shape and the potential of these two beautiful women, these two beautiful young women, Hannah and Taya, came from. Were they tucked in amongst the zebras? poor, poor passengers as well? <laughs> no, they weren't, and they're entirely fictional. I... Um, 
I went about this book in a completely different way as I went with my previous two, which was when I had a sense of a historical event and the people involved, and I started researching in, in order to find out questions, particularly about the people and the way in which the world they lived in impacted the choices they felt they had to make. And my research both answered those initial questions and then opened up new lines of inquiry. But it was sort of a, rather than a linear sort of process, it was, it was circular, you know, like an initial drop of curiosity and then the ripples outwards until you have, you know, a greater picture of what it is you're writing about. With this book, like I said, it was much more nebulous. It was, I'm interested in landscape. Oh, this, you know, South Australian tourism industry has put out this really interesting advertisement for the Barossa, which is so evocative. And maybe I could write about something like that. And, you know, I'll look at, I'm going for the walk, I want to write about these trees. You know, it was completely just stupid, really, in so many ways. Uh, I had no idea what it was birding. I was doing. The word you're looking for is bower birding. <laughs> bower birding, it was complete bower birding. It was a very dislocated process. And then there was the, you know, the plebiscite, and I was thinking initially, a lot of this book was actually a reaction against my previous ones. I didn't want to do the same thing again, where I took essentially a historical criminal woman and examined her life in order to sort of question the dominant narrative that surrounded it. I knew I wanted to do something that was lighter, not in a sense of subject material, but something that was a little bit more celebratory, something that was a little bit more uplifting, even though you could argue that that's, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not gonna say too much, you know, this book isn't necessarily, you know, a, you know, a, a, a comic book, we could say, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm known for my lols. Um, but no, it was, uh, it was much more this sense that I, you know, I was bower birding, I was having these ideas, I was thinking about friendship, then the plebiscite happened, no, I wanted to write about two women who were in love, but by this stage I'd also done research about these Prussian old Lutherans, and so I sort of found myself thinking, okay, I'm going to write a love story between two young women who fall in love and emigrate to Australia within a religious community. And then it was a matter of, I guess, trying to find research material that would somehow bolster that. I knew as soon as I decided that this was gonna be a love story that my chances of finding a true love story were absolutely minimal. Like Michelle Dikonowski says, you inherit the silence, you inherit the absence. So what I thought I'd do instead was, you know, tick all the boxes and ensure that my representation of the time was as accurate as possible. Even though I knew this book, unlike my other two, which were very much anchored to fact, this book was going to be much more, you know, imaginative. It was going to be much more fictionalised. I knew I still wanted to ensure that I was, you know, I had a, an ethical rigour in my approach, meaning that I got what was known as right as possible. And that was when I started looking for anecdotes surrounding these emigrations which occurred. And that was when I stumbled across the journals of Dirk Hahn, who was the captain of the Zebra, who brought around 200 emigrants to, the, to, to Port Misery, as Port Adelaide was then known, because it was awful. Um, and they would then go on to, to create Harndorf on, on Bakatilla. And I, um, I started reading these journals in the State Library of South Australia, thinking, okay, you know, if, if I can just get a little bit of an insight of what it's like to, I don't know, be on a three-masted ship, then that's fine. I'm probably not gonna include very much of it in the book anyway, because it's one of the few things that I really am struggling to visualize, you know. I've never had, I've never experienced such a journey. I don't even know what it would really look like. I just couldn't see it. And then I was reading through this journey and he's sort of this very nice seeming captain. He's a bit annoyed at having to take emigrants. He'd rather just take goods. He's never been to Port Adelaide before. 
He writes about these immigrants. He says they're very pious and very well-behaved and very clean. They sing every morning and night. They hold a lot of services and pray all the time. They're very religious. Um, everything's going very well. And then I was like, oh, okay. Well, just sort of noting down the weather and the, the few animals he mentions, just trying to glean whatever sort of details I can to see if there's something there. And then I was like three quarters of the way through of these journals and the captain sort of stops and he says, I may have not been entirely truthful in my descriptions of the emigrants. And you can imagine my reaction as a novelist, it was like <laughs> <laughs> And then he starts to basically list, it's just a list of all these grievances and all these terrible things which happened on board. And I found out later that he felt impelled to include all this information because some of these conflicts were ongoing and he thought they might go to court and I might have to testify, I might have to be a witness, I need to get the details straight. So they're incredibly detailed and it's like the human face of these emigrants emerge and you hear about these petty arguments over, especially as the journey continues, they get more irate with each other, they fight over bacon rashes, some people want to have herrings in hot weather and people are calling them stupid because they'll be thirsty and the water in the barrels was put in the wrong barrels and it's adulterated with whiskey. So everyone's feeling thirsty all the time and everyone's vomiting everywhere. Then they go through bad weather and someone batten downs the hatches and then the people who are sick with scurvy and vomiting and seasickness nearly suffocate because there's no air and suddenly it just comes to life. And I sort of finished the journals thinking, oh, I have to use all of that. <laughs> This is now an entirely boat-bound book. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much, yeah, copy and paste. It was, um, <laughs> I tried to change it a little bit, but, um, but all the incidents which happened on the boat in that, in that aspect were completely drawn. I mean, they're all, anything dramatic which happens on the boat was happened. But it was one of those things, those, those discoveries and research that completely changed the way that I approached the book. Suddenly this journey was so central to the novel and the, the way in which the relationship between these two characters develop and change. And it, I mean, it just, it completely rearranged the, the structure of the book. I didn't really have a structure at that point, you know, because I'm a pantser. I was uh, just kind of focusing on character and I was focusing on the relationship between Hannah and Taya, you know, what makes Hannah different, what draws her to Taya. And then I encountered this and I'm like, oh my goodness. It was like the, all, the, all the minor characters came to life around these two and all the events suddenly spoke to these themes that I was already interested in kind of trying to feel my way around. And a, yeah, a, like a light turn, was turned on where I'd been fumbling in the dark beforehand. So that was one of the most pivotal moments, I guess, in, in the writing and research process. Um, I know that you have some um, affinity with this sort of arrival of Prussian ancestry in Australia and that's sort of where your family come from. And we learn a lot about the old Lutherans through Hannah. Um, you know, that the churches have been locked in their village, the worship is, is secretive, it takes place in a forest, which is rather lovely. They all have to come into the forest using different pathways so that they don't get found out. We learn that dancing is forbidden, you know, one couple get caught and they have to apologise to the congregation for indecency because they've been seen dancing at a wedding and the pastor has been told. Um, and that brides learn wear black, um, that Lutherans fear witches. We learn all of these things. And this is a very powerful sort of cultural architecture to import around the world into the very rich cultural space of this continent as, you know, home of the longest continuing culture in the world. How did you begin to think about the particular intersection and impositions of Lutheran beliefs, their way of 
looking at the world, their way of operating in it and their way of trusting it mm. as it had to overlay onto Paramount land. It was a big part of my research because I was curious. I mean, I think in any aspect of characterization, perhaps particularly when you're, it's a historical setting, is trying to understand the worldview, trying to understand you know, what people fear, what their day looks like, the reasons why it looks like that. And so I spent a great deal of time trying to find you know, these sources of information, diaries, journals, letters, all these sort of primary sources, which sometimes you know, just really offer up incredibly relatable situations or really just give you such a strong insight into the way that people lived. So it's, I, it might seem pedantic, but I do spend quite a lot of time trying to find out what someone's day looks like, you know, a day in the life. And that's when you find out these little things that there was a bell, that the church is not just something you rock up to on Sunday, but the church bell would call you to work in the morning. It tells you when to stop working. The ways in which your village was set out, surrounded by the church to sort of acknowledge its centrality, not only just to worship, but that religion was threaded throughout every other aspect of your life. Um, and that these traditional practices, you know, brides wearing black, you know, that was, I found a fantastic um, sort of literary article, um, no, sorry, not academic article, from a conference where someone had basically gone through all the known times that old Luther women belonging to these old Lutheran communities had really sort of pissed off the authorities. And one was when someone, you know, shockingly turned up to her own wedding in white, as was the practice of the British and not black. And she was basically pushed back out of the church. Um, but, you know, you read these things and you get this really strong sense of a community that is devoted to one another, but that they are completely... Um, they are very aware of the fact that they are different from other people and that this idea of unity often comes at the expense of a sort of wider integration. And you see that with the Paramount people too. I did find quite a lot of documents and letters that mentioned those initial relationships or the initial interactions between um, the Paramount and the Prussians, but they were obviously all written by the Prussians. So you have to obviously take into consideration the massive amounts of prejudice and those worldviews that are held by the people who are writing the very documents that you're looking to in the hope of you know, the truth, um, which is a very difficult thing to do. But it is often sort of incorporated into the narrative of that area that there wasn't, people often say things like, there was no hostilities, and I'm like, isn't theft of land kind of an act, a hostile act? Apart so, from that. You know, um, so you have to kind of, you know, adopt, I guess, a contemporary, educated, you know, aware mindset when you read these sorts of things. But it was something that I knew was going to have to come up in the novel because, like I said, you have people who are seeking freedom, who are seeking autonomy, who are seeking the right to continue their, their cultural practices and their, and their beliefs and to interact with one another and have the, you know, the right to do so under the way that they wish to do. And then, of course, they're coming over and you know, at, at the ex they get what they want, but at the expense of inflicting exactly the same woes onto, onto the original inhabitants. You know, so this was something that I knew was going to come in. And I was very fortunate, actually. I was able to speak with a wonderful woman, Elder Mandy Brown, who's a Paramount elder and a writer herself. And we had some chats, not just obviously about those relationships and, and what has been documented and what hasn't been, but also the, the presence of Paramount characters in the novel and the ways in which they would relate to 
themes that by then were very strong within the novel, ideas of spirituality, and again, country, relationships to country. And so it was, um, it was certainly, it took up a great deal of my, my thinking about this novel and my approach to it. But it's something that, again, I wish I had more, more to work with because I was very aware too of my position as someone who is a descendant of these people who, you know, are colonizers. Um, and my place, I don't feel that it was ever my place to adopt, uh, for instance, a, I would never have a paramount character who was a protagonist because that's not my space to take up or my culture to appropriate. So it was, a, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting exercise for me. And there were certain things that I did creatively within the novel, and some of you who have read the book might know what I'm talking about. But that was one way, I guess, of allowing myself to dislocate my protagonist from the dominant worldviews that would have been shared by her people at that time. In other words, it was a way to give her additional understanding or a deeper understanding of the evils of colonization and of land theft and of the decimation of resources um, in a way that I guess, yeah, it's so hard to talk about this without giving anything away, but there were things that I felt I had, it was something that I felt I had to do from a creative aspect. There were things that I had to do to the reader in order to sort of shake it up a little bit and allow me to tell the story. Because I was very concerned right from the very start. I think this is probably part of my reluctance of writing about a, a, a colonial history, because I think you always run the risk of, you know, celebrating a history just by writing about it, by giving voice to certain things. And I didn't feel that there was a, a, a need. In fact, I felt that that would be a, a terrible thing to do. So, you know, to hold up the voice of a white colonizer, we don't, we don't need to hear from them. So in so much of my approach to the story, it, that's why I keep the notebooks. It's working out, okay, what are you doing here? What is important about this story? What is, what is the feeling you wish to convey and what will it do? Um, that was one of the reasons I did. But yeah, I'm indebted to, I'm indebted to Elder Mandy. She's, she's a remarkable woman. You should look her up, she's a poet. She's amazing, Elder Mandy Brown. Um, I, I would like to sit with the Lutherans just for a minute. I'm keeping an eye on the time as well because I've got a million things that I could ask you here, of course. Um, but before the villagers come to this side of the world, uh, and one of the reasons that we are uh, sort of um, talking a little bit more about the front of the book is, as, as Hannah just mentioned, there are things we are not talking about in this book for all of you who haven't read it yet. So everybody who has, no spoilers, please. Um, but before the villagers come to this side of the world, and as they're beginning to understand that they are going to be able to make this huge voyage, Hannah has a dream that she's walking through her place and her home and it's been abandoned and there's no one left, everyone was gone. And that line made me think about, you know, this continual ebb and flow of human life and aspiration and adventure, the, the sort of great remakings and upheavals that follow the world's persecutions and its migrations and just its daydreams over and over again what it destroys and what it creates. There's something in, in this kind of, this is one of those never-ending narratives as well, isn't it, of the coming and the going. As you say, we're very concerned and particularly as non-Indigenous writers about how we navigate that space here, but it is this kind of constant global mm. movement in a way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's you know, I never necessarily set out to write historical fiction. You know, when I was studying creative writing at university, uh, that was not something that I thought I would ever write. And I sort of feel that I fell into it out of, you know, for instance, with burial rights, with the, it was just my obsession with Agnes Magnus Dotti that kind of led me there. But then the process of research 
was something that I, um, I initially started because I was kind of doing my due diligence and then completely fell in love with. Um, because I think when you have access to letters and things from the past, it m makes you realize how so many concerns of these people from the past are concerns we still share, perhaps in different forms today. And to me, that what makes it, that's what I like in historical fiction when I read it, that the historical fiction isn't actually historical because its concerns are contemporary. And with this book, I actually, it's, I know that it's, you know, you're gonna find it under historical fiction in a bookshop, but it's, to me, I think of it as a contemporary novel because I think its concerns are completely contemporary. And yeah, this is what is interesting to me. It's just the human face behind all of, you know, these perhaps quaint or, you know, slightly mysterious social mores or cultures, things that have passed away, but still the impetus and the belief systems and the, the very human emotional story behind it has essentially remained the same. It is universal and it is timeless. And I think that's what's worthy of both representation and also interrogation. Um, I want to talk just in the little bit of time that we've got left about love, which is, of course, the central, um, the central force in this book, I guess. Um, part of what is so beautiful about the book are Hannah's observations of her childhood and her sort of, you know, starting to understand or see more clearly different things about her own childhood and her mother. Um, and as you mentioned, I think, earlier, she says at one point when she's unpacking her sense of the disappointment that she is to her own mother, I was never enough as I was. There are a lot of barriers to different kinds of love in this book. There are some profound external ones as well as internal ones. This one is of Hannah's making in a way. Why are we so good at throwing up those barriers, at, at finding ways to misunderstand each other? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's why I need to write about them. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's my attempt at trying to answer that question. And I think all I ever end up with is just, you know, more questions. I have no idea why that is the case, only that we see it. And I think that's why I wanted to explore that in HANA, because I think it's something which, again, is so common. And yet none of us really have the answer, because if we did, you know, we'd be giving TED Talks about it, you know? I am. Um, <laughs> But it's something which does come up, you know, this idea of, of I think it's something, you know, it was interesting last night, I had the very great privilege of sitting in on the, the panel about, about love and, and love stories. And I think the idea, that was interesting as, the, as we went through the speakers, the same sort of themes and questions came up and the idea that people think themselves unworthy of love or that there are things that we might, you know, at the, when we are being our worst selves, deem that make other people less worthy of love come up. I think it's just such a common theme and it's something that it, it, sometimes doesn't even come from anyone else, it's just what we tell ourselves. And so I was, um, it was, I was interested to hear it come up there because I think it is a concern in this book. And it's tied too to this idea of, of religion and God and higher powers and the aspired self. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry, Ashley. I actually have no idea how to answer all your the all questions. my answers, Hannah Kent. <laughs> it's only that I, I'm aware of it and I'm interested in it. And yeah, I have no idea why it is that that happens. But you know, it's yeah, acceptance. You know, self-acceptance, acceptance of others. These are the great problems that we still tussle with, right? It. Um it put me in mind of a very beautiful, there, were, there are lots of aspects of the love in this book or the, the different conversations about love in this book. And as I say, there are things we're, we're categorically not discussing here. Um, but it, I, 
it put me in mind of the idea of um, love as a radical act. Um, at one point, Hannah talks about being pinned to the world by love. And that reminded me of um, the great definition of love by Bell Hooks, the fantastic feminist thinker and activist, who talks about love as a doing, not a feeling, and about love as a combination of care and commitment and knowledge and respect and responsibility and trust. This book is secretly, or maybe not so secretly, a manifesto for love, isn't it? That is really what is at its, at its own heart, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think it just ended up, it always just lifted to the surface, these questions of love. And the idea of love being a verb is something that I'm always interested in. I, you know, it's like the massive attack song, right? Teardrop love, love is a verb, love is a doing word. As soon as I heard that song, that line has stayed with me the whole time. And um, even when I was in Iceland, there's, there's a different sort of, there can be different ways of saying love if it's in a verbal sense. And I, I really think it's important to think of love as a verb, as an action. And coming back to acceptance, when I started looking at the nature of the love story between Hannah and Taya and, and, and what, drew, what draws Hannah to Taya, and I think, it, it, I think it's in the notebook that I kept, I was, I was writing about acceptance, the idea of unconditional love, meaning that total acceptance, regardless of everything, that the love remains, that it's a constant and it's, it is accepting and embracing of everything. I think that's you know, one of the highest things that we can, we can as, aspire to, or that one of the greatest gifts that we can receive, right? Anyone who feels that they have ever been deeply, truly loved, I'm sure will say that it's because there, it was completely unconditional. It was always there. And I think that, yeah, like you say, perhaps that's the thing that I had to spend 140,000 words <laughs> trying to say. I would say 140,000 beautiful words. <laughs> um, um, I'm going to sneak a couple of things in because I can't see, I can see Tracy waving at me, so we must have about five minutes left. Um, one of the most powerful parts of the journey of this book for me was its insistence on embracing wonder and embracing awe. And I guess these are parts of what we might think of as, as any religious experience, even for, you know, quite strict old Lutherans. Wonder and awe are also an incredibly important part of being human, though. There's a lovely moment in the book where um, the, the ship that is going to take these people to South Australia finally reaches the ocean, and Hannah talks about wanting to see the ocean for the first time every time, remaining open to that kind of, that understanding, that thrill. And she talks later um, about things that make life beautiful and noticing of the overlooked, a sturdy, soft heart ever open to ordinary divinity. That sounds to me like a description of the writing life in some ways, noticing of the overlooked, a sturdy, soft heart ever open. Is that part of the writer's life for you, to live in that sort of receptive and present kind of way? I think so. I think it's what I aspire for it to be. I think um, when I do feel that way, receptive and malleable, like I'm happy to have my own mind changed and I'm willing for it to happen, that you're simply sort of receiving, you know, it sounds a very religious term, but the kind of the glory and the wonder and the awe of everything around you and you feel very grateful for the ability to see it, that's when I think I feel my most creative. And I think that's when I feel able to write uh, this is going to sound kind of strange, but that's when I think I, I feel like I can write in a way that is closest to pinning beauty to the page. 
it's when I feel, it's kind of, I guess when my, I feel like it, writing becomes a, a spiritual act in the sense that it feels like a surrender to a higher power, a higher meaning, um, a, a surrender without complete knowledge. You know, it just feels like you're just taking it all in, you don't really understand it, but you're going to try and write, you're trying to try and give back and sort of honor this, this feeling. Again, it's, it's hard for me to talk about because I think there's only so much language can do, and I think that, but I do think that sometimes writing can feel like a spiritual act, and I feel like it's those moments when you feel open to the world and when you feel grateful for the ability to, to you know, when you just feel like you're really living and you feel like you're taking everything in. I mean, I have this memory, right? I th I, this, is so, this is kind of strange, but bear with me. But I have this memory of when I was about in year five and I was walking home from school. And this is, you know, on the same landscape that I'm trying to convey in the book. And I rounded a corner, and it was late afternoon, and the sunlight was coming through, and it was hitting this body of water, a dam or a lake in front of me, and everything was just golden, you know, that sort of autumn light. And the, the lake was, was just dazzling. It was just a, a bowl of light in front of me. You know, I'm this kid in, in year five, and I started crying because it was so beautiful and I didn't know what to do with all of that beauty. I didn't know how to process it. And I will always remember that moment. I still, you know, all the hairs rose up on the back of my neck and it felt like a spiritual moment. And I was so overwhelmed and so just kind of, I don't know, just taken aback by it, just kind of bowled over by what I was seeing that I had to go home and the only way that I could process it even then as a young kid was just to try and write about it. And I think to me that that's the, that's when a writing feels like the best, most wonderful thing I could be doing in my life. A lot of the time it's not that, it's me being grumpy and tired and drinking six coffees and trying to like smash out a sentence on the page. But those moments where, yeah, it feels like everything is aligning, yeah, and the, and the writing comes easily and it feels like an offering or it feels like something I am giving rather than something I'm doing for my own self, then yeah, that would be the, that would be the feeling that I have at those times. I love that sense of offering and giving, and despite the fact that I've got a hundred other things I'd like to talk to you about, I am conscious people probably have to go and do other things. Um, it was a, an absolute pleasure and a privilege to read this book, and I, I really do genuinely thank you for making it for us and talking about it with us today. We've talked a little bit about Hana with her ability to hear the world speak and sing this sort of beautiful, beautiful metaphor. And there's a section, I, I can't remember where it is, where Taya tells Hannah something that her mother had told her once, that when we sing together, our hearts beat in time. So here's an idea that I would like to finish with. Perhaps that might be true when we read together as well, when each of our individual consciousnesses and beings enters into one book and finds whatever message it holds in there in particular for us. I hope that you will all enjoy exploring devotion. Keep talking to Hannah Kent through its pages. Thank you so much for everything you've given us in the pages and today. And will you join me now in thanking Hannah for her lovely conversation? Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. I hope you enjoyed listening to this session, which was recorded at the 2022 Festival. Save the date for our 10th event coming up from March 31 to April 2, 2023. Stories to you.